Hello, everyone, and a warm welcome to the first episode of the Cardiology Trials podcast. I am Mohamed Ruzia, joined by Andrew Foy and John Mandrola, and we are thrilled to start this podcast with you. In this series, we will dissect the seminal trials that shape the field of cardiovascular medicine. We are not just here to recount medical history or recite study abstracts. With over 200 trials and counting, we are committed to dissecting each one with a focus on how its findings translate to modern clinical practice. What sets us apart is our dedication to evaluating the external and internal validity of each trial and how to translate the results to the patients in everyday practice. Our podcast is designed for medical trainees and the professionals at all stages of their careers, as well as curious minds to understand the origins of medical recommendations in the field of cardiovascular medicine. We can't wait to share this journey with you, and we hope you find our content engaging and insightful. Our podcast kicks off with a review of the BHAT and ISIS-1 trials. These trials were chosen because they are the first trials in the section on acute coronary syndrome under the, subse the subsection of medicine. In the 1970s, the care of patients suffering from heart attacks involved the close monitoring in the cardiac intensive care units and the treating symptoms of angina and complications stemming from the event. Some of the modern medicine, medicine we use today were being developed at that time, including beta blockers, angiotensin converting enzyme inhibitors, as well as thrombolysis and coronary angiography but none had yet been validated in large-scale clinical trials. Now I will hand over the microphone to Dr. Andrew Foy to lead us through the BHAT and ISIS-1 trials. Thank you. In 1982, the beta blocker heart attack trial, also known as BHAT, was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. The trial was sponsored by the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute and sought to test the hypothesis that administration of the beta blocker propranolol to patients hospitalized with an acute heart attack would reduce death over a two to four year follow-up period. Patients were recruited at 31 centers with 134 participating hospitals. Eligible patients had to have a confirmed myocardial infarction, they had to be between 30 to 69 years of age. They had to be in stable medical condition, and they had to be at least five days removed from presentation. Patients were excluded if they had a medical contraindication to propranolol, such as marked sinus bradycardia, severe congestive heart failure, or asthma, or if they had a life-threatening illness other than coronary heart disease. An important caveat for clinical translation, this was a highly selected population of patients. Over 16,000 met the inclusion criteria. However, less than 4,000 or 23% were ultimately enrolled. The cohort was composed primarily of young white men who smoked. The average age was 55 years, 89% were white, 84% were men, and 57% were current smokers. At the time of enrollment, the average blood pressure was 112 over 72 millimeters of mercury, and heart rate was 76 beats per minute. 
only 14% developed heart failure symptoms prior to randomization, and 17% were on a diuretic at the time of randomization. 23% also experienced ventricular tachycardia before randomization. The mean number of days in the hospital prior to randomization was 14. 30% of patients had anterior MIs, 30% had inferior MIs, and non-transmural MIs accounted for 23%. The assigned study drug was initiated during the index hospital stay. Patients were started on either 20 milligrams of propranolol or matching placebo. If no adverse reactions were noted, then it was increased to 40 milligrams of propranolol or placebo every eight hours. Patients had to be monitored for a minimum of six consecutive doses or two full days in the hospital on the 40 milligram schedule. Eight hours after the last dose, blood samples were drawn to test blood propranolol levels. Based on the level, patients were prescribed either 60 or 80 milligrams three times a day for either 180 or 240 milligrams per day, respectively. Placebo patients were also assigned the same dosing. Patients were asked to report to their coordinating centers at four weeks and six weeks, and then every three months thereafter. The clinic physician, at his or her discretion, could reduce the prescribed dose of medication. Furthermore, patients who were prescribed non-study beta blockers had those medications withdrawn. The primary endpoint of the study was all-cause mortality. The mean follow-up time was 2.1 years. At the time of last study visit, approximately 85% of the propranolol group and 13% of the placebo group were taking a beta blocker. 57% in the propranolol group were receiving a full protocol dose. This continuation of propranolol compared to placebo was relatively uncommon, and most reported side effects were evenly distributed. Several complaints were statistically greater in the propranolol group, but the difference is small from a clinical standpoint. 7% of patients in the propranolol group died compared to 10% in the placebo group. This difference was highly statistically significant with a p-value less than 0.005. When translated to events per 100 patient years, patients in the propranolol group experienced three deaths per 100 patient years compared to five deaths in the placebo group. Statistically significant differences were also observed for cardiovascular death and death due to arteriosclerotic heart disease overall and for the component of sudden death but not non-sudden death. Only a small number of patients, accounting for less than 1% in each group, died from non-cardiovascular causes, and the difference was not significant. The results of 19 subgroup analyses are presented, and evidence of an interaction is observed only for those with non-transmural MIs who did not appear to benefit from propranolol. At one-year follow-up, the mean heart rate and blood pressure in the propranolol and placebo groups were 65 versus 73 beats per minute and 127 over 80 versus 130 over 81 millimeters of mercury, respectively. In conclusion, propranolol reduced death compared to placebo in the BHAT trial. Over 2.1 years, approximately 33 patients would need to be treated with propranolol to prevent one additional person from dying. This was, however, a highly selected patient population and thus the results have limited applicability to modern practice. Patients 70 or above were excluded altogether, and less than 25% of patients meeting inclusion criteria were ultimately enrolled. Following hospitalization, propranolol was not begun until day 14 on average, 
And after starting the drug, patients were monitored closely in the inpatient setting, ensuring that only those who tolerated treatment well were continued on the drug. And what ultimately made patients become eligible after the obligatory waiting period of five days is unclear. Close monitoring for tolerance and safety was continued in the outpatient setting, which is also not practical in today's current practice environment. Wow. That was a remarkable trial because what strikes me, Andrew, from your description is how selective and and how strict this this trial criteria were, right? So 14 days in the hospital for an MI back in 1982, number one. Number two, I mean, they, they had uh, really close monitoring. The drug started on day five, only for patients who are stable. And I think, I think this really gets to the argument of uh, external and internal validity. It seems like a highly internally valid study, right? It's just uh, placebo controlled. It's, um, I mean, it's, it's just, but it's very strict. And did this not establish, is this one of the things that established oral beta blockade after myocardial infarction, correct? Yes. But it, I mean, what are either your comments about how how strict this was and how special kind of this trial was? Well, I think um, it has significant issues with external validity that make the results probably not that applicable to how we manage patients today, possibly how we ever managed patients, at least not since I've been in medical training. Um, and I think it makes me concerned about the safety and tolerability of, of starting beta blockers uh, very early on uh, and, in, and essentially almost all patients who are admitted to cardiology services, particularly for acute coronary syndrome. And I don't think if we were to say that well, the BHAT trial supports how we use beta blockers today, I would say I think that, that that it probably does not. The next trial I'm going to be uh, discussing is the uh, International Study of Infarct Survival, also known as ISIS. This was an international collaboration to evaluate the effects on survival of treatments with broad applicability during the early phase of myocardial infarction. This will be the first of many trials presented by this group. It was published in 1986 in The Lancet. The investigators sought to test the hypothesis that early beta blockade with atenolol would reduce vascular mortality in patients with MI. Recall the average start date of propranolol in the BHAT trial was day 14. Here it will be immediate. Patients with suspected myocardial infarction within 12 hours of symptom onset and not already on beta blockers or verapamil were eligible. Contraindications included heart rate persistently less than 50 beats per minute, systolic blood pressure persistently below 100 millimeters of mercury, second or third degree heart block, severe heart failure, or bronchospasm. The authors point out in the manuscript that the design was meant to be pragmatic to facilitate patient enrollment. Once patients were randomized, they could not be regarded as ineligible, even if MI was later refuted as the diagnosis. 
there were no special procedures dictating patient follow-up after their hospitalization ended. The average age of participants was 59 and 77% were male. The mean systolic blood pressure and heart rate at entry were 145 millimeters of mercury and 79 beats per minute respectively. Approximately half of the participants had a definite MI, which based on the definitions used in this trial meant an ST segment elevation MI, meeting the appropriate cutoffs. Presumably many more participants had STEMIs with less pronounced ST elevations and another significant percentage would have had non-ST segment elevation MIs. Patients were immediately randomized to a tenolol or control. Those allocated to active treatment received the following sequence of interventions. First, an immediate IV injection of five milligrams of atenolol given over five minutes and stopped if the heart rate fell below 40 or if any other contraindication developed. Next, after 10 minutes, if the heart rate was above 60, they received another five milligrams more of atenolol, which was injected. If after another 10 minutes, the heart rate was greater than 40, 50 milligrams of oral atenolol was given. 12 hours later, another 50 milligrams of oral atenolol was given. 100 milligrams daily or 50 milligrams twice daily of oral atenolol was given thereafter for another six days or until hospital discharge if it occurred earlier. If thought necessary, oral treatment could be reduced to 50 milligrams daily or stopped altogether. Rules defining this are not provided. In the control group, no placebo was given but beta blockers were to be avoided in hospital unless thought to be clearly indicated. For example, something like chest pain unresponsive to nitrates or calcium antagonists, or if needed to control significant hypertension that wasn't responding to other agents. The primary endpoint of the study was vascular mortality. Follow-up after discharge involved only mortality through government records wherever possible. 16,027 participants were randomized from 245 hospitals. 94% of beta blocker allocated participants received at least the first 5 milligram IV dose of atenolol. 2% had the first IV dose discontinued, and the other 4% developed a contraindication before a dose could be given. Oral atenolol was not received by 7% of the atenolol allocated patients, and overall 27% a later discontinuation or a significant dose reduction. 2% of control patients received some dose of IV beta blocker in the hospital and 7% received some oral beta blocker. During the active treatment period corresponding to day zero through seven, 3.9% of patients in the atenolol group had a vascular death compared to 4.6% in the control group. This difference was statistically significant with a p-value less than 0.04. The difference in all-cause death was also significant as there were only six additional non-vascular causes of death. All of the apparent benefit on vascular mortality was observed in days zero to one with no further difference thereafter. At one year, the difference between the atenol and control groups for vascular death uh, were 10.3% versus 11.6%, and they were 10.8% versus 11.9% for all-cause death, respectively. Inspection of various subgroups yields additional information that is interesting. Men accounted for 77% of all participants and 65% of vascular deaths from day zero to seven, but did not appear to benefit. The difference in vascular death was 3.5% in 
in men treated with atenolol compared to 3.7% in controls. In contrast, women who accounted for only 23% of participants and 35% of vascular deaths derived a benefit over twice as large as the trial average. 5.2% of women treated with atenolol experienced vascular death versus 7.5% of controls. This subgroup difference was not addressed by the authors in the main manuscript. It is hard to put into context. Other interesting subgroups included patients with signs of hemodynamic instability based on heart rate greater than 90 or systolic blood pressure less than 120. In both groups, overall vascular death rates were higher than average. However, there was no benefit from treatment with atenolol. Participants with both of these features, who made up only a small percentage of the overall trial population, experienced a much greater increase in vascular death with atenolol use compared to control. This information is critical for clinical translation and will be seen again in a subsequent large trial of beta blockers in acute heart attack. In conclusion, IV atenolol followed by oral administration over seven days reduced vascular and all-cause mortality in patients presenting with suspected MI with a number needed to treat of approximately 100 to prevent one death over seven days as well as one year. The ISIS-1 trial was highly pragmatic in design but susceptible to performance bias since it was unblinded. Greater antiarrhythmic drug use in control patients could have biased results in favor of atenolol. Patients presenting with heart failure, significant hemodynamic instability, or bradycardia were excluded. All of the benefit appears to have been derived between days zero to one. Today, the benefits of early revascularization would likely uh, mitigate most or all of the small benefit observed in ISIS-1. Well, it does, it does seem like there's, uh, again, um, a, a great trial, ISIS-1, a, a great thing to study. However, your last comment makes it, makes it really challenging for us now, right? Because we, we, instead of giving IV beta blocker back in the 1980s, uh, these patients are rushed into a cath lab for revascularization, and one wonders whether, um, you know, the again the internal validity of this trial seems very reasonable, uh, but the external validity, um, uh, similar to similar to the other similar to BHAT, is also uh, just really challenging, right? Because it it really does seem like there's a benefit from IV atenolol in the setting of an MI in the 1980s, um, but things are, things are different now. And, and Ruzier, what would you say? Because to me, to me, this, this trial sort of, sort of underscores the tension between internal uh, validity and, and pragmatism, right? So it's a pragmatic trial where they want everybody, all comers to be included, but because of that, you leave things to the discretion of the, um, of the treating physicians, you get a, you get a pragmatic trial, but then, I mean, the BHAD trial just seems so highly restrictive. Um, and, and it, it's sort of, it's sort of different. And you feel good about saying that in BHAT in that trial, in that, in that year, in those controlled patients, that oral propranolol was beneficial. Uh, but here in, with the IV atenolol, you're taking more of an all-comer population and you're allowing uh, physician discretion 
And there's sort of that tension between a strict trial and a pragmatic trial. Yeah, yeah, th those are all great points. And and as we see, the the benefit seen in the ISIS-1 trial was significantly smaller than the absolute benefit in the BHAT trial. And that's probably because we were less restricted. When we are less restricted, we are likely to see the treatment effect to be attenuated. Uh, so I think, and this applies to patients in everyday practice, right? If when we treat patients, we have to look at the inclusion criteria of the trial. We can't say if the medicine worked on us on a group of patients, it will work on all of them. I think that's important in everyday practice. Andrew, historically, what would you say? I mean, these two trials established beta blocker therapy, but I mean, how is how is the IV beta blocker, the ISIS trial, uh, how is it translated and how is it how is it in guidelines right now? And and do you agree with with how it's applied today? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I I actually I guess I find it surprising um, what my perception is that there's an enthusiasm for beta blocker use within cardiology that I can't exactly put my finger on when I go back through the history of these trials. Um, and it's just a perception on my part, but I feel like I'm, I often make this teaching point when I'm on, especially when I'm on the inpatient service, but also even in the outpatient setting. Um, it just seems to me that there's this idea that beta blockers are incredibly safe, incredibly effective drugs in cardiology patients. And I oftentimes see beta blockers used over drugs that have certainly demonstrated better efficacy in clinical trials. Uh, I oftentimes see beta blockers continued, whereas what I would consider to be better drugs are stopped under certain circumstances. Um, so I, you know, for me reviewing these trials, I am struck by what is relatively mild to modest treatment effects um, in either a highly selected population like BHAT or a, a very small effect in a trial like ISIS-1 that may even have some issues with internal validity. And to think where the, you know, where the perceptions of, of the greatness or the safety or efficacy of beta blockers has necessarily come from. I mean, I can't put myself into the place of training during this time. Um, but, you know, maybe some of it is sort of like a legacy effect of beta blockers being like the first drug that was really tested in this situation with trials and found to be effective. And maybe that, maybe that's some of it, you know, like it, it, I, I can't explain it personally based on my review of the trials. And I, I do, you know, I want to limit this discussion to BHAT and ISIS-1, but those, with the exception of, of, a few others that we'll discuss in the future are the are really the the big ones. And um, you know, when you 
appreciate that these were the results. Yeah, it certainly makes me wonder, you know, how some of our current practice patterns were established. I guess I'll just leave it at that. Yeah, I'm looking at I'm looking at the Lancet publication for ISIS and the first sentence is between mid-1981 and 1985, 16,000 patients were randomized. So, I mean, mid-1981, that's a long time ago. And um, the entry criteria for these patients, the median, median, mean blood pressure was one, 145, mean heart rate 80. And so, again, I mean, different, uh, a, a different era and um, uh, patients with, you know, stable blood pressure and stable heart rate. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's eye-opening. It's eye-opening when you really go back and look at who these patients were and when they were randomized. Because, I mean, you know better than I, I exactly. I, I I can't remember this, what percent or even this was well before PCI, but um, uh, what about lytic therapy? Um, well, I think that there would be some patients who would have received uh, lytic therapy, but I don't think it would have been the majority. And um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would, again, I would just sort of, it makes it, it's puzzling to, to, to read these trials and to consider that these are, these are what so much has been, has been based on at least around beta blockers. I, I mean, and I don't want to come off as being overly critical in our first podcast. And it's not that this is going to be the case every single, you know, every single thing that we review, but, um, I I I find these these results of these trials, the effect size from these trials, the selection, you know, the selectivity of them, all of it, I find it somewhat puzzling. Um, where what I perceive to be like a, almost an irrational exuberance over beta blockers has has come from in the world of cardiology. Historically, I can I can tell you that in the mid 1980s is when I rounded on the medicine CCU service in Hartford Hospital, and at those days, patients came in with MI, and the big the big issue was not we had no we had no revascularization like emergency PCI. It was basically preventing uh, uh, LV rupture, VSD, and complications of MI, MI that are rarely seen now. And so the mechanism of benefit of the beta blocker was probably to just reduce adrenergic tone and to reduce wall stress. And and I have no doubt that at that time it was probably beneficial in the patients that they selected for these trials. But since we're since we're in a different era, but we still use the term myocardial infarction, um, that this evidence has been has been translated, and I'm I'm almost certain, ninety nine percent certain, that there are ongoing trials now looking at uh, beta blocker withdrawal and and not using beta blocker in post MI settings. So we'll 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 find out. We, I don't know that any of that data is available yet, but. Well, isn't it so interesting, though, that even in these trials where you think of somebody 
having just a heart attack in front of your eyes, you know, an anterior STEMI or an inferior STEMI or even just a non-transmural MI with ST depressions and you're giving them nitroglycerin to help help them feel better, maybe diuretics to decongest them. I mean, beta blockers reduce myocardial oxygen demand. The thinking is that they reduce infarct size. They have these sort of antiarrhythmic properties and effects. Even within that context, in a trial like ISIS-1, the reduction in mortality was less than 1%. Yeah. I mean, even in that, that context, the reduction in mortality was less than 1%. And when you look at patients that had any sort of like signs of hemodynamic instability who were higher risk patients, they didn't benefit at all. Potentially there was this harm signal. So even in the patients who you think would benefit the most, a person that's just infarcting and you want to give them something that's going to reduce infarct size and wall stress, as you mentioned, and have maybe some you know, electrical stabilization properties. I mean, it was a half percent reduction in, in risk. I mean, that's small. <laughs> One of the things that we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about more is the fact that the p-value was, was statistically significant, but uh, the absolute risk reduction was small. And of course there were 16,000 patients randomized and 245 CCUs. So again, um, uh, very interesting uh, first trials, very provocative. Yeah, I, I agree. All right. Ruzia, any closing comments? Yeah, these have been excellent trials and discussions. Thank you, Drew and John. Stay tuned, everyone, for our podcast next week. And be sure to visit our Substack page for more posts and discussions. Our substack is named Cardiology Trials. Until then, stay safe and take care.